Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. We are almost beginning a new series on the book of Acts. This is kind of a prequel. So I've been mentioning that we're starting a new series on Acts, and so today and next Sunday, we're actually going to look at the end of Luke, Luke's gospel. Why, Brock? Why would you look at the end of Luke? Well, I'll give you the answer. Luke and Acts went together in the early church. It was one writing, one scroll, and theologians call it Luke-Acts. And so Luke, as we know, focuses on the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus and his kingdom ministry as the king. And so what we're going to see today, it's very important before just moving into the book of Acts that we look at how the end of the story about King Jesus ends with Luke 24. And what we'll find is it sets us up. It paves the way for a better understanding in the book of Acts. Because what Jesus is going to do, he's going to turn to his followers in the book of Acts and he's going to say, I am going to the Father. I've been raised from the dead. I'm ascending to the Father. And when I do, the Spirit of God is going to come on you in an unprecedented way. And you're going to continue my ministry. I'm going to extend my ministry through my church. And so these two fit together cohesively, Luke and Acts. And so I want you to keep that in mind today. We're going to touch on a few things, key themes or threads that are going to crop up through the entire book of Acts. Makes it a little more understandable. So if you want to open your Bible to Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, And we're going to look at the revelation of the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And what we're going to see, I'm going to read it here in a moment, but we're going to see in this interaction that there's a meeting, a conversation, a meal, the revelation of Jesus, and then a report to the disciples. So we're just going to walk through this text together. Let's read it. And again, we mentioned this, the church, the early church was committed to reading the scriptures together every time they got together in one another's homes. They read the scriptures. For those who were still in the temple or the synagogue, they read the scriptures three times a day. So this is a lengthy text here, but it's juicy. It's good. So Lord, we ask for impartation and transformation as we even read the holy, precious words of scripture. Luke 24, 13 through 35. And again, there's pew Bibles. For those of you who haven't heard that, there's pew Bibles that you can grab. And I encourage you to bring your own Bible. Let's use our Bibles here. So Luke 24, 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other 
about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. Then he said to him, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Mm, That's good. So we're looking at four parts here, and the first is in verses 13 through 16. You see in 13 through 14, it's kind of the setting of the story. We've got two disciples here in this passage, Cleopas and an unnamed person. By the way, Cleopas is the male form of Cleopatra. So it's a very regal name here. We just, we don't know much more about Cleopas than that right there, but we don't know who this other unnamed person is. And early church fathers have surmised that it could have been Luke. We're not sure though. But they're journeying from Jerusalem to a small village called Emmaus, roughly seven miles away. And archeologists have puzzled over the identity of where is this town? Where is this ancient village? And we actually do not know. There are some good 
ideas, but we don't know. We just know that they were journeying there. And these two disciples were in deep discussion, weren't they, about all these things. What are all these things? It's what had been happening with Jesus. And we'll see that they were disappointed. They were heartbroken. They were dejected over all these things. Verses 15 through 16, Jesus appears to them, doesn't he? It's pretty startling. Cleopas and his traveling buddy, they're processing, they're walking on this dirt road, and Jesus comes alongside them, which would not have been unusual to be traveling on a journey. Maybe you've done that on a trail in Colorado. You're hiking along, and someone else comes and either walks by you or joins you momentarily. Well, that's what's happening here. Cleopas and the unnamed disciple are walking, and Jesus shows up. But the text says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's very mysterious. We'll learn more about this later. We're not sure, but later they will have a full vision, a complete picture of who he is. Jesus was in his resurrected body, wasn't he? So we know from the other gospels that Christ has been raised from the dead. And obviously, a text like this shows us there was something different about him, wasn't there? Even if they had not spent a whole lot of time with him, we don't know. But there was something different about him and his human physical body. And this is not unique to just this passage here. John 20 verse 14 echoes something similar. If you remember, if you've read the end of John, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Do you remember that? And who does she think that he is? Oh, the gardener. That's right. She doesn't recognize him. So there's something about this person in resurrected form that is only recognizable with certain things, as we'll see. Mary heard him call her voice, and she said, that is not the gardener, that's Jesus. That's the Lord Jesus. And he's going to reveal himself to these two in a different way. This is a great mystery, isn't it? The resurrected body of Jesus. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, especially at verse 20. And he says that the body of Jesus raised from the dead is the first fruit. So if you want to know what resurrection life is going to look like, look at the resurrected Jesus. There's something physical. He is fully human. He's in the body that he had before, but it's raised in glory. And there's something transfigured about it. And Paul talks about that. He says, Jesus goes first, and then the rest of the family follows him also in resurrected, glorified bodies. We'll see in other places in John 20 again that Jesus in this resurrected body does unusual things, like appearing behind closed doors and startling people. That's why constantly he's saying, shalom be with you, because people are scared out of their wits. He appears. They think that he's dead and he's actually alive. He appears to them. A second part of this is found verses 17 through 27. It's really the bulk of the text, isn't it? The men give an explanation, beginning at verse 17. Jesus, because he's the greatest teacher that's ever lived, isn't he? And he's a rabbi. And so he teaches like a rabbi. What do rabbis do? They ask questions. That's exactly right. And so Jesus asks them, what have you been discussing? 
what have you been talking about? And he begins with that first question, and they stop abruptly, don't they, at verse 17 and 18. They stop, and they're overcome, maybe because of the movement of walking and all. They're kind of caught up. There's a little bit of adrenaline, but at that moment, they stop, and their sadness overcomes them. And so Jesus is engaging them, and he sees that they're dejected, and he's about to turn their world upside down. But he's letting them experience the grief so that the joy is all the sweeter. When Jesus asked that question at 17 and 18, look at verse 19. Cleopas gives an answer. What things have we been talking about? The things about Jesus of Nazareth at verse 19. And he gives a nice little summary there, doesn't he? He says that Jesus is from Nazareth. He's a prophet, mighty in deed and actions. Verse 19 and 20. Yet our chief priests, in spite of this, in spite of Jesus being a prophet sent from God to speak the words of God and do the works of God, our chief priests... And leaders handed him over to the Roman leaders to put him to death by crucifixion. So it really begins to show here why they are so depressed. Their hopes were high. And they go on to say, we had hoped that this was the Messiah who would redeem Israel and who would overthrow Rome. But it didn't happen. At least not the way that we anticipated Friends, this is a reminder right here. These good folks had read the Bible, had put their hopes in God, but there was something slightly off. They were putting their hope in something political, weren't they? They were trusting in a Messiah who would come, and in their understanding, he would ride in, and he would lead a rebellion, a revolution, and they would overthrow Rome. And he would set up the throne of David and rule over this ultimate enemy. Is that what happened? No. So in here is a gentle reminder to you and to me that we don't put our ultimate hope in political movements. Amen? Man, do we need to be reminded of that. Here at this church, we want to be politically informed. We don't want to have our heads in the sand. We want to look around, and we want to be aware and discerning of what's happening. But this text reminds us that our hope is not in a political revolutionary Jesus, but the Jesus of the cross. It's an adjustment to our thinking. Behind me is the cross. That is our symbol. And one day he will come. We were singing about it. He will come and he will set up a theocracy. And he will rule and reign. And all the nations will submit to him. And everyone will give account. Including the world leaders. Including you and me. That's coming. But his first coming was the way of the cross. And that's what he has to adjust in their thinking here. Look at verse 25 through 27. It seems a little harsh, doesn't it? He actually rebukes them for their foolish, foolishness and slowness to believe all that the prophets in the Old Testament scripture have made abundantly clear at verse 25. 
He's going to address this again later in verses 44 and 47 when we look at that. But look at what Jesus asks at verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Messiah, the promised anointed one, the king of David, the son of David, to suffer first and then enter his glory? Now he's not explaining here what verses, what texts, what passages he's talking about. We have to wait until Acts where we see that. And Peter's sermon lets us know because Peter's mind is filled with Old Testament scripture, with the Hebrew Bible, with the promises of the Messiah. And so he lays out precisely what Jesus is saying here. Psalm 16, Psalm 110 that spoke of the Messiah coming and suffering and being raised to the Father's right hand. Jesus said it's there. It's there for eyes that can see. It's in the promises of the Old Testament, as well as the glory of his second coming, Daniel 7 and other places. Then Jesus teaches them about himself. Friends, that is the greatest teaching that's ever been given. How would you like to be there? I mean, if there, we look at great teachers, you know, that are great expositors and all, my gosh, to be there for that moment when he lays out the greatest expository sermon that's ever been given. He's the most anointed teacher, the most kind, the most gracious. The children could listen to him and understand him, and yet the wisest leaders would be challenged by what he said. It's the greatest teacher and the greatest teaching, and this is one of the moments where we recognize that. If he taught like that then, how does he teach now? He continues to teach, doesn't he? Through the Spirit of God. Friends, this is astounding. We want to sit with this for a minute. Because this, what Jesus is doing, explaining the scriptures to his followers about himself, sets the pattern for the church until the second coming. This is how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to have the scriptures open and search them and say, resurrected Jesus, would you teach us now? Would you teach us about yourself? Would you teach us about the Father and his plans? Would you teach us about your spirit, the spirit of Christ that's at work in the world? This becomes our model, and we do this every time we're together, and hopefully as much as possible when you're together in groups, we open the scriptures, we search them, and we ask Jesus to teach us. Amen? Friends, this is an absolutely stunning privilege that you and I have every day. Do you want to be taught by the resurrected king of the universe? How much do you want? I think I might fit it in once a week for 10 minutes. I got eight hours for podcasts, but I got 10 minutes for the greatest teacher who's ever lived. We got to reorient things. We got to prioritize. We're busy, right? And some of you are crazy busy. Find a way to sit at the feet of Jesus as much as you possibly can and let him teach you. He will open up the word of God to you. He will blow your mind. He will transform your mind. He'll renew your heart. He'll make you new. 
And you have the opportunity, I have the opportunity to do that as much as we will schedule it. That's one of the cruxes of this whole passage. It's an invitation for the church for all time to sit at the feet of the master teacher and have him open up the scriptures to us. It was dawning on me this week. I'm just thinking, I got to listen to it more. I'm in the car. Rather than letting my mind whiz into neutral or think about things, or I'm going to play some scripture and say, Jesus, you're with me now. You indwell me. Teach me. I want to be a ravenous madman when it comes to the word of God. Do you? Young people, I've said this time and time again. I'm going to say it till I die. You have the opportunity, young people, to give yourself to Jesus through the word of God. Do it. It's the secret weapon of all secret weapons. Is lust coming at you? Get in the word of God. Is anxiety coming at you? Get in the word of God. And start young. Start early. So this gives us the pattern. And it emphasizes, Jesus is showing them in the scriptures, there's continuity in God's plan. The Old Testament laid it all out. And then the New Testament, the New Covenant, explains it and unpacks it. Friends, I don't know, I can't even pretend to know what all happened in that sermon. But Jesus is explaining the things about himself. Genesis to Revelation. What is it about? It's about the Messiah. It's about Christ Jesus. It's about the anointed one who would come in humility, who would be born in an obscure place, who would die and be raised from the dead, who would be ascended to the Father and send his spirit. The whole book is about him. The early church gets weird at times. Some of them use allegorical interpretation and they're finding Christ and various things. That's not what we're talking about. But Jesus is laying out a pattern, a way to read the Bible. And so I would encourage you in new ways to say, Jesus, teach me about yourself. And there are lots of patterns there in the Old Testament. So Moses lived a certain life and did certain exploits and God did certain things through him. And then the New Testament teaches us there's one greater than Moses. So you can study the whole life of Moses, the odyssey of Moses with the people of God. And it's really pointing to the greater Moses, the anointed leader, Christ Jesus. The same with the life of David. The whole book is about the Lord Jesus. Sure adds some some energy, some juice to our reading the book. What a privilege it is. Look at verse 28. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, but he does something else. Verses 28 and 29. They're coming near to the village. They probably started in Jerusalem and done a round trip, and they're coming back. And they're about to be in Emmaus. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go ahead and go down the road. And they say, no, stay with us. So the three of them sit down for table fellowship, which was a common regular practice. And again, I want you to keep that in mind as we move into the book of Acts. They continue to practice table fellowship. They share a meal together. They give thanks to God. They break bread. They cultivate friendship there. But they encounter the presence of God. 
This is common all through the whole Gospel of Luke, especially two places. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000 miraculously. And so this image here is reminiscent of that. And then in Luke 22, there's the Last Supper. And so this moment right here is reminding us of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's reminding us of that moment that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. It's full of meaning. He's the one hosting the meal, isn't he? If you look at the text there, verses 30 and 31, why is he the one serving? We don't know. Possibly because he was giving an explanation of the scriptures. And so at that moment, the two people said, why don't you serve the meal? out of honor and respect. And obviously, they had been blown away by the insight of the one who the whole book is pointing to. So he's serving the meal. And what happens at verse 31? Look at this. This is really one of the high points of the whole passage. Verse 31. As he takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks. What happens at 31? Then their eyes were opened. Then their eyes were opened. They see and recognize Jesus. This word here is unique. Only time in the New Testament the word open here is used, but it's related to a passage. I'm just going to read it. Write this down. You can look at it later. But in 2 Kings 6, 17, there's a story where Elisha and his servant or looking out over a mountain range. You remember it? Some of you said, ah, I remember that. And Elisha is looking out over the mountain range and he sees something. He actually sees into the spiritual realm. And he sees, and his servant doesn't. His servant is saying, I see nothing here but a future tail whipping by our enemies. And Elisha says, I'm going to pray for you. And he lays his hand on his servant, and all of a sudden, the servant's eyes are opened. It's related to that word here. And what does his servant see? He sees the mountains filled with the armies of the Lord. And it reorients his whole perspective. He saw the mountain full of angelic horses and chariots of fire all around. Now, we don't know why they saw that it was Jesus. Maybe Jesus had a unique way of breaking the bread. We're not sure. But he was made known to his disciples in the breaking of bread. Friends, we're going to do this here in a few moments. We're going to break bread, and this is how Jesus continues to make himself known through the table of the Lord, through communion, through the Lord's Supper. The presence of Jesus was central at the Last Supper before his death and resurrection. And here it is again. After his death and resurrection, the presence of Jesus continues to be the focal point and the promise of the breaking of bread. I want us to think about this for a moment. Not only the opening of the scriptures, but the opening, the breaking open of the bread and the sharing of the cup. Friends, the resurrected Jesus is among us when we do this. And our prayer today is that he would open our eyes to see him, to encounter him like never before, 
And as we move forward as a church, we are committed to the sacrament of Scripture. What's a sacrament? It's a means. It's an avenue through which we encounter God. And the sacrament, the body and blood of Jesus. The verse shows here that it's rather astounding. Luke is leading us on this journey and they've encountered him, they've seen him, and then look at verse 31. As quick as this happens, he vanishes from their sight. It could be that the text is showing us that we may not have the physical body of Jesus with us as a church, but his presence comes to us as we celebrate communion or the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. This is going to become primary in Acts. I mentioned this is kind of a prelude to the book of Acts. Acts 2.42 is going to show us early on in the story the expansion of the church, that the church is practicing what Jesus is teaching these two disciples on the road and what he taught them at the feeding of the 5,000 and at the Last Supper. Friends, this is primary for us. And I want to invite you, do this at home. Break bread. Drink juice. Drink wine. Celebrate the presence of Jesus that comes to us as we celebrate his broken body and his shed blood. Verses 33 and 35 in the story here. These two disciples go back. They go back to Jerusalem and they're filled with excitement to tell the 11. Why is it 11? Because Judas is already out. Acts is going to explain that to us in the first chapter. So it's the 11 others and they're just excited and they say, you know what, we already know. The text says, we know the Lord has risen indeed. He appeared to Simon Peter. And so they celebrated that. And it's a perfect setup. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 24 next week, Connie's going to open that up and then we're going to dive into the book of Acts. Why don't we stand? I'm going to ask the elders to come up if you would. Friends, what an invitation for you to come and sit at the feet of Jesus, to open the book that's about him and then what an invitation it is for us as a church to come and to celebrate his death and his resurrection. Friends, you know what's over this table right here? The love of God. So as you come up here, as you participate, you're loved. The Father loves you so much that he sent his only son. And we get to remember him. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup also after supper saying, do this. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, as often as you break the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're going to have four stations up here. We have a gluten-free station here, this white bowl, a recent request. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that even as this passage instructed and showed, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes in a new way, that we would encounter the resurrected Jesus. 
We thank you for your love, Father. We thank you for forgiveness and the shed blood of Christ.